Well, good morning and welcome to this pre-recorded service for 6th of December 2020 from Calvary Church here in Brighton. Welcome to you if you are regular or if you're just dropping in. For those of you dropping in, let me say my usual introduction that uh, we are a church based in the UK in the seaside town of Brighton, directly south of London. We, uh, back in the day, we were 70 or 80 people meeting together on a Sunday morning. But of course, uh, at the moment, we're meeting by YouTube. My name's Philip Wells. I'm pastor elder at the church here. I'm leading this morning and we'll be speaking a bit later. We've just left lockdown two and uh, meeting, as I said, by YouTube and Zoom. But we are actively planning and preparing for limited meetings in our building, beginning with a simple sort of test live stream on December the 13th when Mark will be preaching. So um, people will be able to be present at that and be able to watch it on the internet. But please note there will be a number of limitations and it'll take us a while to get everything working uh, with maximum smoothness. Now, if you'd like to be there, you will have received an email from David and you must reply and uh, book a place because the places will be limited. My understanding of the limitations, just to be reasonably clear on this, we'll have to wear face coverings. There'll, there'll be no congregational singing. Uh, we'll have to be at two metre distance, therefore limited in numbers. And my understanding that seeing as we're in tier two, uh, socialising with people who are not in your own household, socialising with them indoors is uh, contrary to the guidelines. So we won't be able to stand around and chat. So a number of things there which uh, make it different to what we would like, but please be aware of that. If you are not planning to come, and of course not everybody will be able to attend, the meeting will be live streamed. Now that means you need to tune in at the exact time in order to be part of that. So, just to let you know about those plans. Now, the topic that we're looking at this morning is continuing in the New Testament letter to the Hebrews, and we'll be completing our backtrack into Leviticus. We've gone back to look at the Old Testament book and the Old Testament system that Hebrews refers back to, and this time we're going to be thinking about offerings and sacrifices and atonement. And of course, as Christians, we will be reflecting and marvelling at the way that Christ's death on the cross wonderfully fulfils all the things so vividly depicted in the Old Testament. So the, the uh, plan is there on the screen. And um, let's pray. We're going to read in a moment, but let's pray first. Almighty God, you have said that if we draw near to you, you will draw near to us. Please make this time a time of drawing near to you. Deliver us from all distractions. Deliver us from anxious thoughts. Enable us to receive from you and to draw near to you in genuine communion with God through Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit. Hear our prayer. Amen. We're going to read from the Bible. Uh, uh, there's a, a few verses to read, and uh, from Isaiah. It's up on the screen there, the, um, the exact chapter. 
I'll give you a moment to dig out your Bible because I think you might find it helpful just to look up the verses as we go through it. And we're going to go first of all to Isaiah chapter 40. And this uh, in verse 12 says about the Lord Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on scales and the hills in a balance who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counsellor whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him and who taught him the right way who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding. And those verses invite us to ponder how great God is. By comparison of uh, big things, the oceans and the mountains, with small things, uh, the breadth of a hand, a pair of scales, he says that uh, God is so big that the whole heavens he, he measures off sort of with the breadth of his hand as we might measure a piece of material or a piece of wallpaper or something. God is so great. And it goes on to say how wise God is. He doesn't actually need our advice and counsel. That would be completely um, improper for us to think that we can tell him his business. We don't know better than him, although sometimes I think we seem to think we do. But uh, here, who does the Lord consult? Who does he say, oh, I'm a bit stuck. Can he give me a hand? Can he help me out on this? God says, no, I know the end from the beginning. I know the right way. I know the right way to order my universe. And I know the right way to order the lives of my people whom I know intimately and closely. So there's that thought from uh, Isaiah uh, 40, 12 to 14, and then uh, 21 to 23. Have you? Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood? Since the earth was founded, he sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. That's God's greatness. And then we turn over the page to Isaiah 53. Uh, I'm just going to bring us verses 4 to 6. Isaiah 53, where now it changes gear and we think about the servant of the Lord, this remarkable figure depicted in Isaiah, the perfect, wise servant of the Lord, really what Israel was supposed to be, but what she failed to be. And this servant, who, we thought about how high God is, this servant comes very low. He experiences human sorrow and pain and affliction and disgrace. And we wonder why. Here he is in Isaiah 53 verse 4 Surely he took up our 
infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Here is the servant of the Lord who suffers for us. There's an exchange, a substitution. We sinned, but he bore the consequences. And this is our God and his servant. This is the Father and the Son. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, with those thoughts to start us off, let's uh, sing song 1192, Who Has Held the Oceans in His Hand? 1192. Grain of sand, kings and nations. 
to pray. And following the prayer that I say, please would we like to say together the Lord's Prayer up on the screen. And we'll say that together when I've prayed my prayer. We come before you in adoration and praise because you are the mighty, mighty God. Forgive us that our imaginations and our minds tend to contract you instead of magnifying you. But help us to lift up our hearts and souls and spirits to you this morning in praise and in adoration for your greatness, your majesty, your wisdom, your power, your glory and goodness. We come to you, Lord, in confession. We confess our sins to you, the sins of thought and motive and word and action. Things that we have said and thought and done that we should not have and things that we have omitted to do that we should have. We bring our sins to you and don't hide them, but confess. And we ask that at this time, particularly, you would deliver us from the sins of becoming bitter, thankless, grumbling, unbelieving, but rather deliver us from those sins and forgive us for them. We come to you in thanksgiving, and particularly at this time, we are thankful not only for the, for the way you have kept us and are keeping us and providing for us, but we're thankful also that we have the anticipation of remembering the season at which hope came down in the form of the baby Jesus, that you showed that you had not left this world to run its course lonely and destructive, but that you you came in person to be our deliverer and our redeemer. We thank you for the hope that is embodied in the baby in Bethlehem that we'll be thinking about in this season. And as we come to you in prayer, we bring requests in prayer for our world, that you will have mercy on our world with all the mess that we're in for our nation and government. Please give wisdom and humility to the leaders of the nations and not least our own government in the, uh, in, uh, the UK here. We pray for the Queen and the Royal Family as we are commanded to do and the Prime Minister and the Cabinet and the leaders uh, of the different parts of our United Kingdom. Pray too for those who serve in the NHS and in other services that you would protect and uphold them at this time of continued difficulty. We pray for the spread of the Christian gospel in our land and in our city. Please bless and help each gospel church, whether it is large or small. And we pray too that you will bless the work of the gospel overseas with our different brothers and sisters and friends in different places. We particularly pray for Victor and uh, 
Judy at the moment, that you will be with them in their need, particularly in the housing situation that we are seeking to help with at the moment. We pray, Lord, for those who are vulnerable and lonely and isolated, and we think uh, of a number of people in our fellowship, particularly our friend who is several hours' journey away in hospital, and pray that you will be with him. We also commit to you those who face medical procedures, uh, and that you will grant them calmness and a good outcome to those procedures. So here are our varied prayers, O oh God. Thank you that you in heaven hear prayer at the place of compassion and almightiness, at the throne, the gracious throne. So please overlook the imperfections in our prayers and in grace and mercy, hear and answer. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And now let us say together the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory for ever and ever. Amen. Now, having prayed, we move on to a reading. And uh, thank you, Wendy, for so clearly and beautifully reading to us from Ephesians 5, verses 1 to 20. I've chosen this reading because it starts off with a reference to Christ and his offering and sacrifice, which uh, we're, we're told was of a, a, a sweet aroma to God. And uh, it, it, as Paul talks about this, he says how this ought to spill over into the quality of life and relationships in the Church of Jesus Christ. So thank you, Wendy, for reading Ephesians 5, 1 to 20. Ephesians 5, verses 1 to 20. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure or greedy person, such a man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. 
but everything exposed by the light becomes visible. For it is light that makes everything visible. That is why it is said, Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And having sung, having read about the self-offering of Jesus Christ, now let's sing about the self-offering of Jesus Christ. This song that uh, is generally associated with communion but speaks so clearly about the Lamb who bears our sins away, slain for us. 
so we share in this bread of life, and we drink of this sacrifice as a sign of our bonds of grace around the table of the King. So with thankfulness and faith we rise to respond And to remember our call to follow in the steps of Christ As his body here on earth As we share in his suffering we proclaim Christ will come again and we'll join in the feast of heaven around the table of the King. So having sung about uh, Christ and his self-offering, we're now going to have a reading. Ray's going to read to us from Leviticus chapter 1, 17 verses, which give us exact blow-by-blow detail of the burnt offering, the Ola. And uh, so thank you, Ray, as uh, he reads Leviticus chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. Leviticus chapter 1, we should read the whole chapter from verse 1 through to verse 17. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He said, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When any of you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he is to offer a male without defect. He must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. He is to lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. He is to slaughter the young bull before the Lord and then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and sprinkle it against the altar on all sides at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He is to skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priest, are to put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, including the head and the fat, on the burning wood that is on the altar. He is to wash the inner parts and the legs with water, and the priest is to burn all of it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, an offering made by fire, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. If the offering is a burnt offering from the flock, either the sheep or the goats, he is to offer a male without defect. He is to slaughter it at the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall sprinkle its blood against the altar on all sides. He is to cut it into pieces, and the priests shall arrange them, including the head and the fat, on the burning wood that is on the altar. He is to wash the inner parts and the legs with water, 
and the priest is to bring all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, an offering made by fire, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. If the offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, he is to offer a dove or a young pigeon. The priest shall bring to the altar, wring off the head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. He is to remove the crop with its contents and throw it to the east side of the altar where the ashes are. He shall tear it open by the wings, not severing it completely, and then the priest shall burn it on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. It is a burnt offering, an offering made by fire, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Amen. Well, there's the reading about the details of one of those uh, major Levitical sacrifices. And we're now going to sing a Christian song which has a take on that. It's number 709. It's by Isaac Watts, the classic English hymn writer. What offering shall we give or what atonement bring to God by whom alone we live? High heaven's eternal king, what offering shall we bring? And then he begins to answer that question by saying, for all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could never give the conscience peace or wash away its stain. It's exactly the statement of Hebrews, isn't it? That those things could not do what they were supposed to do. But Christ the heavenly lamb takes all our sins away, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. Well, he actually says that spot on, doesn't he? So here's the uh, uh, song by Isaac Watts. The tune is, I think, a little bit pedestrian, but we try and do our best with that. Uh, but it's worth it for the words, in my opinion. So we're going to sing 709. What offering shall we bring?
to think about sacrifice from Leviticus and we're opening Leviticus chapter 1 and looking really at the first nine verses and uh, before we get into it let's pray. Lord you have told us that if we meditate on your word we will be like trees planted by the water and we want to meditate on your word just now and hear what you are saying to us. Please come beyond the human speaker and be the one who speaks to your people that our lives may be built on you and in fellowship with Christ that we may live for your glory and be in fellowship with you. Amen. Amen. Well, let me first of all tell you what the plan is. I'm going to say quite a long introduction about the matter of giving and receiving gifts, offerings and sacrifices. And I'm going to try and start where we are at. Not that that is the thing that limits and determines, but just for us to realise where we're at so that we can go into the world of Leviticus perhaps a bit better prepared. So it's quite a long introduction. Then we're going to look into Leviticus in some detail and then I'm just going to wrap up with some thoughts, sort of trying to connect the uh, connect that with Christ and with the Christian life. So that that's the plan, and uh, just so you know where we're going with this. So let's start off with this question: uh, What is this whole thing about sacrifices? Because it's very very foreign to our culture. Um, what is this about sacrifices and offerings? So. I looked on uh, the internet for a picture of sacrifices and offerings and I've got this one about somebody about to sacrifice a goat and uh, there were some pictures when the goat had actually been sacrificed and I thought I just, they're just too gory to, uh, you know, for um, daytime viewing before the nine o'clock watershed as it were. So I haven't put a picture of the sacrifice actually happening because it, it's so distasteful uh, and um, well, there we are, uh, and that would be our reaction, I think, generally to this whole subject. We'd say this is gory, unnecessary. What's attractive about a religion that has this in it? Um, and we might say, uh, perhaps a little snootily, uh, that's very primitive. We've advanced way beyond that. We don't do anything like that at all. Um, it, it's completely foreign to us. And we might uh, actually say, it's all unnecessary. Can't we just forgive, be kind? Isn't that 
the root of uh, all relationships. Just be kind. And that's, that's really all there is to it. Well, um, that's the sort of thing I'd like us to think about. And uh, just to finish the, the, the pictorial side of it, I didn't do uh, a dismembered goat, but uh, there's, a but uh, counters, there's the counter in a butcher shop, so you can actually see what meat looks like. And that's really all this is, is going to be, just going on and on about killing animals and, and meat and stuff like that. Anyway, that's what we're going to get to. So let's uh, wind ourselves back and, and just think perhaps a little bit more generally about relationships, Belie uh, relationships between people. So uh, things that are not true of relationships between a frog and a piece of coal or something like that, but uh, between uh, person X and person Y, person-to-person -person relationships. Now, I know there is this statement, uh, inner relationship, which is just a euphemism, isn't it? Because it means something, but in a relationship, well, there are all sorts of relationships. And I'm going to go through quite a few of them because they all have slightly different ways of operating, but they're all relationships. So there's a father-son relationship. And that, of course, is particularly significant for Christians because we're told that at the heart of the universe is a father-son relationship. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that's the Father and the Son. Daughter-mother relationships. That's being in a relationship of a sort, isn't it? Brother-brother, sister-sister, brother-sister relationships. And they have a particular significance uh, to Christians because we're told that we are members of God's family and the other Christians are brothers and sisters of ours. Now, there are also relationships like employer-employee relationships, and they have their own dynamics, their own expectations, their own boundaries, uh, and, uh, and so on. There's a friend-neighbour relationships, the person who lives next door to you, or the person that you come across in the street when you're uh, on your way between Jerusalem and Jericho. And again, that's an important relationship. Jesus picked out a verse from Leviticus which said you're to love your neighbour as yourself. And he said this is the second um, of the twofold basis of the law. This is what God expects. Love God uh, with all your heart and soul and strength and mind, whatever it is. And love your neighbour as yourself. This is absolutely, absolutely fundamental. And then there is the husband-wife relationship. Again, very special in the Bible because that is, as it, it, we're told that human marriage is a reflection of the marriage between Christ and his church. And when I say marriage here, I mean it in the traditional sense uh, of uh, a union between opposites to unlike creatures, uh, a male and a female, and a, a relationship which is exclusive, so other people aren't admitted to that relationship. It is sexual, it is committed and permanent. Well, permanent as long as uh, until death us shall part. Uh, and that is a particular uh, relationship. And of course, when people say, in a relationship, what they usually mean is I'm somewhere near that last one, but not quite in it. Um, you know, I'm in a relationship that has some um, 
exclusivity to it, um, some, some commitment but not total commitment. And, and there is something sexual about it, but it falls short of, well, presumably, falls short of the sexual relationships within marriage. So let's just continue to think about person-to-person -person relationships, because there are all sorts. And, and I want to go on a little bit further with personal relationships, because here is a relationship between the state and the citizen. And uh, that is a personal relationship. You wouldn't uh, have that between a, uh, a frog and a piece of broccoli. Uh, it is a relationship between people. So uh, this sort of relationship involves the citizen paying taxes and the citizen conforming to the laws of the state. So all the citizens of the state agree to a drive on one side of the road and not on the other side of the road. I mean, obviously, in England, I won't go any further with that. But um, there is a, a relationship between a lord and the servant. Now, he may be a good lord or a bad lord, uh, but if you're a servant, you're still a servant. And that's a relationship of authority and allegiance and hopefully protection and benevolence. Or you might say a relationship between a king and his subjects. And that brings us into Old Testament territory, doesn't it? Well, so, of course, does the Lord and servant, because the Lord is the Lord and we're his servants. The king is a particular thing about uh, the Old Testament. Uh, king David the Messiah is king and his people are his subjects and they're to love the king and he's to love his people although that love takes different forms and in particular if he's the king his subjects are to do what he says and they show their love by obeying him and if we just focus that thought a little bit more on the idea of covenant which brings it right home with the Old Testament covenant is a, a, a promise relationship um, and the, the, the covenant in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, is a, an impressive and fair and generous covenant in which God, the King, redeems his people from their slavery. And they says, I will take you to be my people and you, I will be your God and you will be my people. And he, he, he spends a, a huge amount rescuing them and being kind to them and it in turn expects them to appreciate him, to be loyal to him, and to learn his ways and follow his ways. And that's the covenantal um, relationship. Uh, you can have a relationship between a judge and a defendant. So the person is up in court and the judge says, you're guilty or you're innocent. And uh, depending on which of those he says, there is perhaps a penalty to be played. So you can see there are lots of different relationships here, and here's one unique one, uh, which we don't have uh, anything like it in ordinary human experience. This is between the created uh, beings and the creator. And uh, we are created beings. God is our creator. There's no one else like him in this regard. We're made in his image. And, uh, well, there's another relationship so I just tried to quite broadly sketch out all the whole realm of relationships that we are in or might be in as people. And being a person brings us into that world of relationships. And then I'm going to say, well, where do sacrifices and offerings come into this? Because you remember at the beginning we said too advanced 
for this primitive idea of sacrifices and offerings. So I'm going to say, actually, in person-to-person relationships, there are a lot of sacrifices and offerings. Now, what are personal relationships about? Well, particularly if we think about the close relationships, I'm not going to be particularly clever. I'm just, I'm not a sociologist or a psychologist. It just seems like common sense. Um, Relationships in their deepest form are about the other person, aren't they? So love is between persons in relationships according to the sort of relationship and um, I mean I'm particularly think of the marriage relationship it's about the other person not really about me it's about the other and these relationships involve things like acceptance so not having to earn or prove something but being accepted and that's going to figure in in, in a minute as we, as we go through uh, the idea of walking together or working together, having fellowship in that sense of, of shared business, uh, things we do together, that sharing aspect, and the sharing of lives uh, in, in relationship. Remember Jesus saying quite profoundly of his relationship with the Father, I am in the Father and the Father is in me so close that they sort of inside one another as it were uh, sharing of lives uh, I mean emotionally uh, physically in action in thought in word indeed the sharing of lives and relationships involving trust and dependence so in, in I suppose in the deepest forms that it, the other becomes an extension of oneself certainly true in the father-son relationship within the Godhead. The father acts through the son and he, he, there's a trust that one will do. Uh, as the father shows the son what to do, he will do it. The father trusts the son, the son depends on the father. And this of trusting is uh, seems to me pretty deeply embedded in the idea of personal relationships. And there are relationships which have a strong component of authority and responsibility. So, for example, the covenant king has authority over his people and the covenant people are to obey him. So, where do sacrifices and offerings come in? Well, um, things can go wrong in relationships. And you know, the idea of having such a, a relationship sort of brings with it the idea that if that's what it ought to be like there's ways that it can go wrong so when acceptance is turned into rejection there's hurt and when there's betrayal there are responses of anger and jealousy and when there is cruelty instead of kindness there's a reaction of fear instead of love and when pain is deliberately or accidentally inflicted on the other there is guilt and regret and uh, in other if we sort of move out of the into other parts of the spectrum when there's rebellion towards a king there's a righteous anger after all I've done for them how dare they behave to me that way a righteous anger so now I'm moving on towards uh, sacrifices and offerings. Now, in these relationships, as I've described, it seems to me that actually offering 
is a huge part of what goes on. Uh, so offering of self and limiting self, I mean, that's a form of offering, isn't it? Sacrifice, if you like. So in motherhood, you give yourself to the little baby inside you and you give yourself to nurturing that little baby 24-7 uh, for so, so many months and years. In marriage, you limit yourself. You give yourself to the other and you limit what, what uh, you, you can't give yourself to other people as well. There's sacrifice involved in that, isn't there? And in relationships, again, the offering of a costly gift to bring pleasure to the other. That's what we do at Christmas, isn't it? When we give Christmas presents, we say to somebody, I love you, and I love you enough to buy you this small plastic toy, or whatever it is. Offerings of appreciation. Isn't this actually what relationships are made of, saying thank you? Uh, you know, the thank you card, the thank you gift, the word of, words of thank you. This is an offering and a gift. The sacrifice of praise, that was going to come up later. Um, the, the saying, well done, you've done well. Saying, I love you. This is giving, isn't it? This is an offering of something. The giving of attention, you know, the gift of time and, and to listen to somebody. That's a giving, isn't it? That's an offering. The giving of communication, the saying, you know, I really enjoyed our trip to the London Eye or I, I, I'm really worried about Brexit or something like this. This is communicating and this is giving and this is what we do in relationship. I mean, a particular gift and offering is the gift of food. Um, this is the sort of instinctive love language of a mother, isn't it, to feed her kids and to probably feed anybody else who turns up as well. And uh, just going back to the idea of covenant, you see I'm going all over the place with this aren't I? Uh, the covenant king, the giving of covenant love to the king and the king giving his love in covenant to his people and expecting them to love him in the form of obedience. Remember somebody saying if you love me you will keep my commands? That sort of thing. Just to continue this sort of general thought, when relationships go wrong, gifts and offerings come into play. So there is the offering of restitution. So I clumsily spilt my cup of coffee all over the new white carpet. I will make good on that. I will clean the carpet where I spilt the coffee. That's restitution. Offerings that take the blame and bear the guilt, which say, well, actually it wasn't your fault, that was my fault. I was completely out of order with that, which is a sort of sacrifice, isn't it? It's uh, putting oneself into the position of the guilty party. And of course, when people don't do that, you can quite understand the, the sort of unspoken thing, I'll make them pay for that. I'll make them pay for that. Nobody gets away with saying that to me, treating them that, treating me that way. I'll make them pay. Uh, or the other way, I was wrong. I will bear the pain and disgrace of this, whatever it was, betrayal, unkindness, harshness, etc. And there are offerings that affirm restoration. So uh, when there's been an argument, there is a way of making up and saying, OK, we've sorted that. 
now let's go and enjoy a nice walk and a meal together. So there are sort of ways of celebrating restoration. So I've tried to take this uh, quite uh, widely and just say that actually we live in a world of giving and receiving offerings and sacrifices. And I've just got one more there on the screen, which is, of course, there are penalties for wrong. So we can think of in a duty to the state, you know, if you drop litter or something, you pay a £100 penalty. So these offerings and sacrifices go uh, across a spectrum of things. So what have I said in this long introduction? Uh, in person-to-person -person relationships, sacrifices and offerings are not something that in our culture we don't have. It's everywhere. All our relationships involve sacrifices and offerings. When the, the, the relationship is going right, there's a giving and a receiving. And when the relationship goes wrong, there's a penalty to be paid, remedy to be sought, and reconciliation, hopefully, to be affirmed. And this very long uh, introduction, I think, prepares us to look at the sacrifices and offerings described in the Levitical system, because they cover all this ground. And I'm not going to try and cover it all this morning. I've sort of been long enough in this introduction. But uh, suffice it to say that when Hebrews looks back at that system, it says every priest is selected from among men to represent them in matters relating to God, to offer gifts, you know, thank you gifts, praise gifts, appreciation gifts and sacrifices. I'm sorry I got that wrong. Here's restitution, here's penalty. And the death of Jesus is specifically to be understood as the fulfilment of these Old Testament sacrifices. What did Jesus do when he died on the cross? He fulfilled this sacrificial system. Okay, so let's take a, a, a deep breath now and go into Leviticus. And uh, it was read to us by Ray. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He said, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when any of you brings an offering to the Lord, bring us your offering, an animal from either the herd or the flock. In other words, cattle or sheep. So if it is from the herd, I'm looking at verse 3, if the offering is an ola, uh, that's the Hebrew word for it, an ola from the herd, he is to offer a male without defect. So there's our poor little um, bull, little uh, male cow, male, no, male cow. You know what I mean. Um, a male without defect. Okay, so we'll just follow it through. He is to present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So there's the tent of meeting. That's where God lives. And uh, we're his neighbours, if you like, in this, in this regard. And the man who brings this offering is to lay his hand. Um, he is to present it at the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. Now that idea of being acceptable is an important one, which we come to later. It's God saying... This is going to be okay with me. Yeah, this is okay. He's to lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted. So the acceptance is, I put a thumbs up sign there. This is okay. It's acceptable. And the hand is laid on the animal. And again, the word acceptance is in there. Uh, he lays his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. So it's accepted 
and this is put in relation to this word to make atonement, to cover. Uh, so um, the variation on this word here is kippair, and that's what we need to be thinking about. What's this kippair do? It covers, it atones, it does all that's necessary to make acceptable. So, okay, we're just following this through a step at a time. The next thing that happens is, it says in verse 5, he is to kill the young bull before the Lord. So he kills, it says actually the son of the bull. Um, he's, he kills the son of the bull before the Lord. And that, that word before always has a little echo of before the face of the Lord. You know, the Lord's watching and saying, now what's going to happen here? This is a, a sacrifice that's going to be made. Uh, it's 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 made before the Lord. Lost my place. And then Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring the blood and splash it or sprinkle it against the altar on all sides. So the priests take the blood, uh, and there's the the animal as it's slaughtered and 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 bleeds. It's a very gory thing. If you look at the pictures on the internet, you see why I didn't use them <laughs> in the presentation this morning. And this blood is caught and sprinkled against the altar on all sides at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So there's a bowl to catch the blood. There's the altar. And uh, we ought to have the tent of meeting coming in there soon. Uh, so it's splashed on the altar. And there's the door of the tent of meeting. So that's the next thing that happens. So this blood is brought into the equation, as it were. And the next thing that happens is he... Uh, now, is this the priest or the offerer? This is going to be quite a skillful job. So probably it's the priest who knows how to do this, who is to skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. So here's the animal. I haven't tried to, cut, to draw cutting an animal into pieces. I've just put a line across it. But it's cut into pieces presumably because you need to cut it into pieces if you're going to burn it. The sons of Aaron, the priest, are to put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And then Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, including the head and the fat, on the burning wood that is on the altar. So it's cut in pieces. They get the fire in the wood, so the fire's going, and pieces of the animal are put on the altar and burnt. Uh, this must be quite a procedure. I've never seen an animal sort of this size being burnt. I mean, what must it smell like and sound like? And, how much fire do you need to get it all burnt up properly? And there are some parts of the anatomy that are treated specially. So uh, I'm assuming the fat is a particularly valuable part. That's burnt up. And there are the inner parts uh, and the legs that are washed with water. And the suggestion is that um, the, uh, uh, the cow's poo is probably on the legs and uh, maybe on the insides and this is washed off so that the offering doesn't contain stuff that's unclean, but it's, a, it's clean stuff. And uh, the priest burns it on the altar. So the head and the fat and uh, stuff, it gets cleaned and that's all burned on the altar. And it concludes by saying, um, burn all of it. It's in verse 9. The priest is to burn all of it on the altar. It is. It all goes up in smoke. It's turned into smoke and ash. This beautiful, valuable animal, uh, this costly sacrifice, turned into smoke and ash. 
and it is a burnt offering, an offering made by fire. And it also includes, uh, in, I just looked it up, it includes the idea of a food offering. Can't see where that comes in the um, NIV translation. And uh, it says, it is a pleasing odour, aroma, um, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. The, the word pleasing there, having relating to, the, uh, to Noah, actually, the, the word Noah, meaning rest, content, soothing, calming you know this is this is okay bringing one into a, a, a good state of mind and heart so that is the sacrifice and uh, we end up with uh, I, put, I don't intend that to be anything other than a symbol of the pleasing happy nature of the result so I just whipped through that that is standard procedure for a burnt offering. I say there are other offerings as well, but let's just see what we can we can get uh, as we think of this offering. So let's have some thoughts about it. And this is, is as far as I'm going to go this morning. Um, some thoughts then. So what context does this fit into? So in my long introduction, I said there are lots of relationships. What, what, what sort of relationship does this fit into? And I'm going to go for the king side of things first, that God is an almighty and a holy covenant king uh, living amongst his people. That's his tent and it's, he's holy, he's special and these people are unclean and sinful. Now I know he's also a husband to his people and a father to his people so those relationships are there too but I think this primarily addresses the fact that God is uh, an almighty, holy covenant king and that the people are by nature unclean and sinful. That's the state that these offerings, this particular offering, addresses head on because their uncleanness makes them ugly and stained and their sin makes them guilty and as we learn from this there is a penalty here which is death. And that's one of the striking things about this sacrifice, isn't it? There are other sacrifices that don't include death and don't include blood, but this one does. And it's an inescapable feature of relating to a holy God that if you are unholy, there is a death penalty. If you are uh, relating to a king and you're a rebel, you've betrayed him and you are liable to the death penalty. And we might say, surely it can't be that bad. Surely sin can't be that bad. And I suppose the only answer to that is that God the Holy Spirit has to show us how foul and evil and wrong our sin is and what it does actually deserve. And that's what the work of the Holy Spirit to convince us of that. And I hope you will be convinced. Because if you don't, then... It, it, Everything else goes wrong. This is fundamental. So here is God living amongst his people. And this sacrifice, um, I put it creates a relationship. I think that's probably not quite right. I think the relationship was already created by God's redemption of his people and he took them out of Egypt. But certainly keeping that relationship going, sustaining it and mending all the faults and uh, and lapses. This sacrifice is constantly repeated 
to keep mending and keep cleansing and keep washing and, and keep sustaining this relationship. Uh, the God who walks with his people uh, and, and to continue that walk, who, the God who lives with his people and to continue that fellowship. And I'm reminded that in the Christian life we have the same thing, only more so, don't we? He lives in us. He walks with us. He is with us. He will not leave us nor forsake us. We have fellowship with the Father and with the Son. Christ in you, it says in Colossians, the hope of glory. And we're in that relational context of closeness to God. And uh, this is the context in which we're to understand the function and significance of this sacrifice. So let's come to this idea of acceptable. I said I'd come back to this idea of being acceptable and covering. Now, God is not obliged to forgive sin. Forgiveness is not something that somebody is obliged to do. Forgiveness is a gift of grace. And God could easily say, I'm not accepting any of your sacrifices. I want the full and proper payment in the full and proper way. But God says in his grace, actually, I have a, a way that I will accept you. Um, this is a gift from me to you. God is not obliged to overlook or cleanse or forgive sin, but he decides in his grace he will do so. By rights, as we learn from this sacrifice, someone ought to die. But God is willing to accept, well, in this system, he accepts something lesser, uh, the death of an animal, as a substitute instead of the sinner. Isn't that the, the idea of putting the hand on, which I think we'll come to in a moment. But God is not obliged to do this, but he says, I will. No, I will accept a lesser, I will accept a substitute. And in Leviticus 17.10, there is a very significant verse which says, Leviticus 17.10, this is about blood. Any Israelite or alien living among them who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from his people. For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that, ato that makes atonement for one's life. Therefore I say to the Israelites, none of you may eat blood, nor may a stranger living among you eat blood. So God says, this is something I've given to you. This is my gift of a way of making um, reconciliation through the blood of these animals. I've given it to you. God says, this is okay. It's good enough for me. And that leads pretty rapidly to the question, how can God do that? Uh, to accept an animal for my sin, some dumb, poor animal, because of my cruelty, my perverseness, my ingratitude, my nastiness, my foulness. I mean, surely that doesn't compute, does it? And the spiritual insight throughout the Old Testament is 
Well, God says that, so trust him. But it doesn't compute. There must be more to it than this. But we'll trust God on what he says. If that's what he says, we'll believe him. And it's the faith that New Testament Christians have, but we have more insight into what's happened that um, surely human sin requires a human price. And yes, there was a day when a man, a spotless, perfect man, got treated like a sacrificial animal and he died and his blood was shed, his precious blood was shed as a sacrifice. He offered himself as a sacrifice. And that's why those words are so wonderful at the beginning of John's Gospel. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God, a man treated as a sacrificial animal whose sacrifice of himself deals with sin so as to bear it away. And not just for one national group, but across the nations, the sin of the world. Let's come to this uh, business of the hand on the head. Uh, so there's a my little sketch of a funny hand on the head of the animal. Now what's that saying? Uh, is it saying, I identify with this animal, this is my animal, me, animal, that's, that's it? Is it like infection, you know, hands, face, space, uh, that whatever was the, the blood guilt on my hands is now transferred to this animal? So there's an infection, in which case we both have it, or there's a transfer which would say, uh, I had the infection, now I give it to the animal and it leaves me. And I think it's more in that latter sense, isn't it? And as soon as this sin is transferred to the animal like this, a poor thing gets killed. I, think, I always think that's rather shocking. The idea that whatever I had, whatever infection and, and, and uncleanness and, and guilt of sin, whatever I had, as soon as I give it to that animal, it's, it's done for, it immediately dies. That would have been me, wouldn't it? And it shows us that sin is very serious. It's a lethal danger. And this we find hard to comprehend, don't we? We're taught it here, but we're also taught it by the cross of Christ. We think that is what sin deserves. That is what my sin deserves. When I see him hanging on the cross, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what sin is. He's made sin. And that's what it looks like. That's what it, um, it brings. That's the enormity of it. We are humiliated, aren't we, by our sin? And the hand. Well, it's the personal involvement of the sinner, isn't it? You've got to put his hand on, on that uh, animal. And in a moment we're going to sing a song, my, By faith I lay my hand on that dear head of thine, or something like that. Uh, this is at the heart of Christianity too, isn't it? It is a personal religion. It isn't something cultural. It isn't something you get by belonging to a group. Uh, I mean, you do belong to a group, but it has to be you as an individual. You know, your mum and dad's faith isn't enough. You've got to have faith. The fact that you've joined a cosy 
uh, and happy group of people, which I hope they are a happy group of people. But just joining that group doesn't mean that you have the same benefits and privileges spiritually as they have. It has to be a personal faith. So our, our involvement is not by laying a hand on anything or anybody, but by faith that his promises and the work of Christ are good enough for me. We say, I'm up for that. Um, I put my hand up for that. And faith is saying, I put my faith in Christ and him alone. It's not what I've done. It's not what, anything about me. It's him. And I'm trusting in him. I lean my weight on Christ. And then thinking about this all burnt up. This is a very uh, costly sacrifice, actually. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm presuming that in, in those days, if you had an animal, that would you know, be a substantial part of your uh, bank balance, as it were. Now, this sacrifice is total. Everything is burnt up. Now, the other sacrifices vary this. Some of it you share, some of it you take home and eat. Um, some of it is a, a together sort of thing. So there are other sacrifices that express other aspects of giving and receiving in fellowship, you know, thankfulness, uh, reconciliation. And um, so there are other aspects of this. And Hebrews thirteen fifteen picks up on this where it says, let us offer, well, what sacrifice do we offer? The sacrifice of praise. Lips, oh, I should look it up. And I had the place marked. Here we go. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. Fruit of, of lips that confess his name. That's sacrifice. It doesn't involve blood in that sense. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. So those are sacrifices too. Again, not no blood. But... Um, a sacrifice offered, an offering in the sense of the offerings that I talked about right at the beginning. And let's think about this pleasing aroma. Now I don't know what it would have smelt like. Uh, it would have smelt very distinctive, um, burnt up cow, bull. But uh, whatever it would have smelt like if you'd been there, the amazing response from God is that as he, as we think anthropomorphically, you think that God has nostrils and smells it, we're, we're invited to think that way, knowing that it's not actually literally true, but God f smells this and his response with saying, that's good, I'm pleased, I'm pleased, job done, um, we're, we're friends. Now, I don't know whether you've ever reviewed anything on Trustpilot or seen reviews of things. And on Trustpilot, you get positive and negative. You know, you get positive, uh, all my clothes were straightened using this iron and negative, but the handle fell off after three weeks' use or something like that. Positives and negatives. I made that up, as you could tell. But when God gives his review of this, it's all positive. He says, this is it. Um, I'm satisfied with this. It's a pleasing aroma to me. And that's a wonderful thing, isn't it? This pleases me. And we have a, a reference to that 
pleasing nature of sacrifice. In Ephesians 5, uh, the pleasing sacrifice that Christ made. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And there is the the high point, if you like, the total pleasing of God, that God says, after all the sins my people have committed and all their uncleanness and all their mistakes, all their wandering and all of that that I've known about when I chose them, all of that, having seen the sacrifice that my son has made as he offered himself, I'm, I'm pleased. Got no negatives in this, all positive this pleases me. No wonder Christ could say, finished. I've made a full, and, a full and complete atonement for the sins of my people. One offering. And the thing is, of course, that as Christ has offered this um, aroma to God, if we are near him, we pick up the same scent on us. Uh, and we too um, can offer ourselves and in this context God will accept us and what we bring and what we um, offer. So in particular I've got Romans 12.1 where it says therefore I urge you brothers in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And you see how we are brought in on this whole sacrifice thing daily, offering ourselves to God, not as burnt offerings that get burnt up once and then you get smoke and ash, but a living sacrifice daily, offering ourselves totally to God. This is how we live in relationship with him on the basis of what Christ has already done for us. And as I think we read earlier, the uh, Hebrews 13, uh, to do good and share with others, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. He says, yes, that's good. So, there's my thoughts about the Levitical sacrifices. And here's a summary those people had a massive and bloody system for cleansing and covering their sin so that God could live among them with contentment and there could be giving and receiving and fellowship together. We as Christians have a greater sacrifice, the one-off sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And we come to God believing in what Christ has done. We come by faith and we live in fellowship giving and receiving from our Father, offering ourselves as living sacrifices as we head toward heaven, and all because of Jesus and his cross. Amen. So we thought together about sacrifices and offerings, and the great sacrifice and offering made by Jesus Christ. And we'll close by singing the song that we have sung last week, uh, the one about the power of the cross. 
O to see the dawn of the darkest day, Christ on the road to Calvary. I, I think the song really wonderfully captures the awesomeness, the awfulness of sin, but the awesomeness of the work that Christ did for us. So we'll sing 1188, O to see the dawn of the darkest day. our meeting with a prayer. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant 
brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory for ever and ever. Amen. Amen. Well, we shall meet face to face before too long, but uh, for the time being that's it from me, and I say goodbye. Bye-bye.